Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew eight twenty three through 25. This is the word of God. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Let's pray together as we look at this passage this morning. Lord, this morning we wish to see you, Lord Jesus. We wish to see you with fresh eyes. We are small, limited humans who tend to diminish you and make you a reflection of who we are instead of seeing you for who you are and what you can do and of your great love and your power in our lives. So I pray that as we study this passage this morning, you through the Holy Spirit will do a work in each of us for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning in our passage, we will look in the crowd, we will look in the boat, and we will look in the sea, as the title of this sermon says. So I'd like to start today by talking about security blankets. According to so sweet minkydesigns.com, a baby security blanket has played an important part in many people's childhood. Maybe it was so in yours. Whether they called it a blankie, whoobie, or some other nickname, their blanket made them feel comforted and safe. That simple, soft blanket felt like a member of the family, a cuddly friend they couldn't live without. You may not remember your blanket, they say, but you likely remember how it made you feel safe, loved, and cherished. Now, all three of my kids are almost grown, and the ratty little security blankets and bunnies have long gone, but I sometimes wonder if they've only replaced it with large, fuzzy Costco blankets as we have those throughout the house. So Sweet Minky Designs goes on to explain that a child can use a blanket to self-soothe by petting it, playing with it, or pressing their cheek against it. And some parents worry their children might become too attached to a blanket, but most children will outgrow their blanket when they're ready. Experts on parents.com have recommendations for this weaning process. They say preschoolers want an explanation for everything. So when you suggest saying goodbye to a favorite bunny, Give your child a reason for it. Say, you're going to big girl school now, so maybe it's time to leave Bunny home. She'll be here waiting when you get back. Well, we smile and we laugh at these things because we know that blanket or bunny only make a child feel safe. They don't actually do anything to protect them, do they? But it doesn't matter if you're two or you're 32, or you're 52, or you're 82 this morning, there is something that scares you. The things change that scare us, but there's always a scenario that will terrify you. A little ratty blanket may not do it for you to help you cope with that fear, 
But there is something that you're clinging to, to self-soothe. But Jesus is here to show you in our passage this morning that it doesn't do anything to protect you. Only Jesus has absolute authority over everything in your life. But like a preschooler, you want an explanation for everything. So Matthew is here to help us in the weaning process. He's here to say, you're going to big girl or big boy school now. So maybe it's time to leave your bunny or blankie at home. And my prayer is that by the end of this passage, you'll see that you don't need your security blanket anymore because you have Jesus. Point number one in your outline, Jesus has absolute authority over the cost to follow him. Let's read verses 18 through 20 together. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So from the start of our passage, we see Jesus is in control. He gives orders to go over to the other side. Now, other side certainly means physically the other side of this lake of Genesaret that they're standing near. But it also means something uh, racially and religiously. On the other side was a non-Jewish Gentile side. Kind of like we would think of going to the other side if there's a team or there's a conflict. Matthew notes that Jesus saw a crowd before he gives this order. The crowd, as always, same today, is interested in Jesus. They're curious, even excited. But the crowd is a term that always shows a group of people who are not committed. They have many questions, needs, doubts, but not many like all of the answers that he gives. So Jesus tests them. Okay, crowd, who here is ready and willing to go to the other side? And two brave souls step forward, two potential followers ready to step up to the challenge. Blomberg calls these two men the overeager scribe and the undereager would-be disciple. The scribe we've read about already, he calls Jesus teacher and he proclaims that he's ready to leave the other scribes, the other experts in the law to follow him anywhere. He probably thinks of himself at this moment as he looks around the crowd as the fact that he's, he's bold. He's ready to go counter-cultural. He's ready to stick his neck out to follow Jesus. Maybe he's a bit of a rebel scribe at heart. He's eager. But Jesus knows he hasn't counted the cost. Maybe the scribe's thinking, how far am I willing to go? All the way to the other side. But Jesus sees that the scribe is holding on to his security blanket of earthly comfort. So he replies, you don't realize this, but following me is a long-term commitment requiring major sacrifices. This is not just a fun, short adventure. I am the son of man, and I don't even have what foxes or birds have. I have no home. I have no bed of my own to sleep in at night. 
Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here, which is actually his favorite self-designation. It's used 83 times in the Gospels, but every time it's used by Jesus about himself. Leon Morris answers the question that we might ask ourselves this morning, which is, why did Jesus use this term, Son of Man? This is what he says. Firstly, because it was a rare term and one without nationalistic associations. No political complications associated with this name. Secondly, because it had overtones of divinity. Thirdly, because of its societary implications. The Son of Man implies the redeemed people of God. And fourthly, because it had undertones of humanity. He took upon him our weakness, end quote. So we learn from this overeager scribe that Jesus is not impressed by our superficial, excited promises that we make. Followers of Jesus can, be, can expect to be treated as Jesus was treated. The Christian life will not be one of ease and comfort. In verses 21 and 22, we meet the under-eager would-be disciple. He's on the other end of the spectrum. Let's read. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Sheesh, this is pretty harsh. It seems uh, like he's just asking permission to go and bury his father before following Jesus. And Matthew calls him a disciple. And you'll notice he doesn't just say teacher. He says Lord. So he has made some kind of higher commitment to Jesus. He makes what seems like a fair request, but Jesus refuses. Through studying this, I found that burying one's father in the Jewish uh, tradition and religion was actually pretty important. It exempted a son from all sorts of religious duties, like saying the daily prayers, the study of the law, the temple service, and many other duties. So why so harsh of a response? Well, K.E. Bailey, drawing on the insight of Arabic commentators and his own experience of cultures and idioms in the Middle East, insists that if the father had just died, the son could hardly be outside on the road with Jesus. His place was to be keeping vigil and preparing for the funeral. Rather, to bury one's father is a standard idiom for fulfilling one's filial responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime, with no prospect of his imminent death. So this would then be a request for indefinite postponement of discipleship, likely to be for years rather than days. And to this request, Jesus replies, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Who are the dead? Those who are not disciples. Those who are not following. Those without spiritual life. Jesus uses language here and a demand that is both uncompromising and even offensive. Basically, he's saying, let the spiritually dead worry about these mundane things. Your business is life, not death. So follow me. Pursue life. Listen to this incredible quote by David Turner that sums up this absolute authority that Jesus has over the cost to follow him. 
And as I read this, I, I want you to think, which of these two problems tends to be your problem when Jesus orders you to go to the other side? This is what Turner says. The two individuals who speak to Jesus about discipleship illustrate opposite problems, and both individuals are disqualified as disciples. The first's enthusiasm arises from his ignorance of the cost of discipleship, and the second's timidity is due to his awareness of that cost. Jesus' followers must count the cost of discipleship and temper their faith with a realism that considers the deprivations that come to those who follow Jesus. One can hope, he says, that both individuals were led to authentic discipleship by Jesus' rebukes, but Matthew's silence is sobering. We are saved by grace apart from works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 show us this clearly. But our good works are a necessary proof that we have found faith. As we move to our second point, I want to remind us of the setting here. It has been an insanely long day, probably series of days for Jesus and his disciples. They're followed by crowds. There's preaching. There's healing. It's incredibly demanding physically and emotionally. And as the sun is setting here, which gives extra meaning, you can picture the sun going down and Jesus saying, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The sun is setting at the end of this extremely long day, and they're about to set out for a calm two-hour crossing in a boat that could hold about 15 men. It's 26 feet long. It's only a little wider than my arm span and about four and a half feet deep. Jesus is physically, uh, is physically exhausted, and his true disciples have counted the cost. They understand it. They have a new set of priorities, so they drop their security blankets behind and they get in the boat. Let's read what happens in the boat. Verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. The sun goes down, they all set off, and Jesus crashes on a big cushion in the bottom of the boat. And Matthew says, behold, see in amazement, a mega seismos arose on the sea. This is the only time in the New Testament where we read of a boat literally covered by waves. And yet Jesus continues to sleep. Now, the closest experience I've had to something like this is rafting down the rapids of the Arkansas River. Maybe some of you have done that, too. And as we went down, waves were literally covering our boat. I remember just the impact of being hit by an icy cold wave and full body. Now, for me, the experience wasn't that scary, but we were there on purpose. It was sunny. It was daylight. I had a knife life vest on, and our boat was filled with air, so it's impossible to sink it. But even in that experience, if you've been there, there's no way anyone sleeps through it. 
right? I mean, maybe if you're a mother who's been up for a week at night with your new baby, maybe you have a chance of sleeping through an experience like that. Well, that is Jesus here. John MacArthur says, just before the disciples saw one of the most awesome displays of his deity, they were given a touching picture of his humanity. He was so weary that not even the violent tossing of the boat awakened him, even though the disciples feared they would drown. So what do the disciples do? Well, they wake him up saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Remember, they're in the boat. They followed him. They obeyed. They trusted. And now this? Matthew uses a terse three-word expression in the Greek. Lord, save, we perish. To me, that's like a drowning person. And each time they come up for a gasp of air, they have a chance to yell out one word, Lord, save, we perish. This attitude is what it means to be poor in spirit. We're about to be destroyed and are helpless, but you can save, you can deliver, restore, and rescue. Now, they did do the right thing here. When you're panicking in a storm, don't jump out of the boat. Cry out to Jesus. Well, how does Jesus respond? In the first half of verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? This is crazy. Now imagine getting the question from Jesus as you're in the boat in this circumstance. Why am I afraid? Because I'm at sea at night and we're about to drown. I'm in a raging mega seismos. The situation is entirely out of control. I'm not just stressed here. I'm not just anxious. I foresee my imminent death. Of course I'm afraid. Why would I not be afraid? Jesus gives us the answer in the second part of his question. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. So there's something about their fear that has to do with their faith. It's not that the danger is not real. It is. It's big. But Jesus is not real enough to them. He's not Big enough. Their picture of him is too small. They have him in a box of their own making. If they had strong faith, there would be no panic. On the other hand, if they had no faith, they would not cry out, Lord, save. So they have a mixture of faith and no faith. The waves are covering the boat, and Jesus calmly asks them a question. Why? It's so that they, and so that we, all these years later, can understand why we should not be afraid. And then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, we read. Jesus orders, he commands the winds and the sea. This Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament, 
with absolute authority over all nature. The Lord Most High, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, Psalm 65, 7. Or Psalm 89, 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And let's be clear here. The wind didn't just back off a little. The waves didn't just get choppy but manageable. It says there was a great calm, or literally, we go from a mega seismos to mega galena that was generated. You know that time early in the morning when you're the first one at the lake? Maybe you have a kayak or a canoe or some other boat. And as you push out into this surface, which is as smooth as glass, you feel like you're just slipping silently and peacefully cutting through the surface. Well, when Jesus speaks with absolute authority, the molecules that he created and holds together do whatever he says. And the storm ceases immediately. You know, I look at these disciples and this story, and I don't want to be a man of little faith. In fact, If I was there, I would want to be sleeping right next to Jesus. Maybe like that centurion we heard about last week of great faith at which Jesus marveled. Maybe in this storm, he just would have tucked up cozy-like and gone for a nap as well. But unfortunately, far too often, I have too little faith. But do you know how faith grows if we want it to grow? It's not through the absence of of storms, is it? It's not the absence of scary things that are out of our control and could easily destroy us. No, the reward of following Jesus is being there with him in the boat, in the storm, when he finally arises and speaks and the power of Jesus is revealed to us. That is how our faith grows. That's how the faith of these disciples grew. Look at verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Andrew Wilson, in his excellent book, God of All Things, says it this way. It's not merely an expression of amazement that a powerful miracle has occurred. By this point in the gospel, the disciples have already seen plenty of those. This is so cool. It's the realization that there's only one king of the sea. One with the authority to say, thus far and no farther. One who can wake up to part the waters and still the waves and make a way for the redeemed to pass over. The disciples had left that evening on an eight-mile crossing with a sleepy rabbi. And they found themselves, a few hours later, in the middle of Isaiah 51, with the creator of the world, the God of the Exodus, the king of the sea. When was the last time that you marveled at Jesus? What box 
have you put him into? What does he look like if you were to describe him? What does he do? What does he not do in your life? What can he not do? I invite you to stand back and to marvel that he can do everything. Meditate on his power revealed in his glory in this story. What sort of man is this? The sort of man who is God, who spoke and trillions of stars were created, each millions of times larger than the earth. We don't marvel enough. In fact, I think we're too impressed with ourselves. We think we've got Jesus all figured out. And God is small and distant, like a rich grandpa. We should react more to him like when a fighter jet breaks the sound barrier as it goes over our heads. That's what this story can teach us. This story is not so much either about Jesus calming your storms. It's more about him proving that he exists in power over this storm that we read about. And so he is sufficient for your storms. He wants you to, to depend on him, to cry out to him in your storms, or to never panic in the first place. Jesus has absolute authority over the cost to follow him in the crowd. We saw that. Jesus has absolute authority over earthly storms as we follow him, as we saw in the boat. In our last section, we'll see his absolute authority on display again, this time over spiritual forces who oppose him. So let's read our final story, starting in verse 28. And may our faith continue to grow. Jesus has absolute authority over spiritual forces who oppose him. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. All right, stop there for a minute. We have finally now made it to the other side. And two extremely violent men we hear about, so fierce that no one could even pass that way, come out and meet Jesus. Now, if you stop here, you haven't heard this story. If you were one of the disciples, this sounds like a nasty throwdown is about to occur. We have these extremely fierce men approaching Jesus. What kind of confrontation is going to happen? What will the headline be of Jesus brawls with two demon-possessed men? How will it turn out? Verse 29, and behold, pay attention, Matthew says, something unexpected and amazing is about to happen. They cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now this shows us that there is an unseen spiritual world that exists, invisible to us here in the physical world. Because these men have gained great physical power through these demons by giving them control over most of what they say and do. And the demons immediately see Jesus, who had nothing out of the ordinary about him physically. We're actually told that in the Bible. And they call him Son of God, meaning they could immediately 
see spiritually that he was no ordinary man. And note the authority of Jesus here. These terrifying, demon-possessed men have zero desire to fight him. They might have come out baring their teeth, maybe with a rock, like, let's go, like, we're ready to bring the fight. But as we look at the account from Mark and Luke, we learn when he, the, the lead man, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And Jesus hasn't even said anything yet. The demons know accurately who Jesus is. This is important. The son of God. There's no doubt about it. But they are his enemies. And they also know, we see here, that a day is coming when he will exercise his absolute authority over them and they dread the torment that they deserve and they know is coming. Said another way, their eschatology was uh, factually correct, but it is one thing to know the truth and quite another to love it. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. Remember, we're on the other side now in Gentile country. We see these unclean, unclean Gentile animals. And Luke tells us that the demon's name was Legion. And Mark 5.13 adds that there were 2,000 pigs in this herd. So here is the setting again. Army of 2,000 demons against Jesus. Army of one. Maybe there will be an epic battle after all. Let's read on. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank, into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The demons beg. Luke 8.31 relates that they pleaded not to be sent into the abyss, the pit, the underworld, the prison, of bound demons who disobeyed. They knew Jesus had the power and the authority to send them there if he desired. And Jesus listens, and then he commands. No fight here today. Note that there's no fancy, elaborate exorcism either. Jesus doesn't work himself up for this. Go, he commands, and they obey. And the unclean spirits go into the unclean animals and the pigs stampede into the water, and they drown. All that ham and bacon. There's a part of it that seems like a waste. The demons acknowledge the truth of Jesus as God, but note that they remain against him, and they end up in the sea. That third phrase from my sermon title. Now, unsurprisingly, the herdsmen flee to the city. They tell the whole story, emphasizing the part about Jesus and these two demon-possessed men and all these pigs. No doubt, 
They want to make sure it's clear with the first version of the story that it's not their fault that this huge herd of pigs was lost. And the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. Just like the crowds always are, they're a bit afraid of him, but they're curious. They all want to see this Jesus. Who is he? What is he like? MacArthur says that perhaps they were concerned with the financial impact from the loss of the pigs, but more likely, they were all ungodly people, frightened to be in the presence of such spiritual power. And so they ask him to leave. Often the powerful working of God, even that here that we see, which cannot be ignored, it can't be explained away by anything else, by the world, will result in rejection. If this happened to Jesus, in a few more chapters we'll see it happens to the disciples, we should not be surprised when it happens in our own lives too. So we've seen that Jesus has absolute authority over the cost we must pay to follow him. He has absolute authority over all the earth, the storms that come up as we follow him. And lastly, absolute authority over spiritual forces who oppose him. We saw this with the people in the crowd, with the people in the boat, and the demons in the sea. So what? What application is there for us today? What do we leave with today? Why does this change our world, our thinking, our hearts? Well, let's take each of these three one at a time together as we Seek to apply it. Are you in the crowd this morning? You've heard about Jesus. You're deeply interested in who he really is. What does he really teach? It's a good question. Can he really do miracles? Would he really do something amazing for you? This is great if you're asking these questions. I'm glad that you're here. This is where we all start. We're all scared, but we approach Jesus with our questions, our doubts, our needs, and our security blankets, the things in this world that we're holding on to still, to feel safe. Like the scribe, you may have come here this morning a bit over-eager. Note that Jesus did not question the scribe's sincerity but he shared some demands that true discipleship require. Impressive promises are easy to make when you don't know the cost of commitment. As Bible commentator R.C.H. Lenski observes, such a person sees the soldiers on parade, the fine uniforms, and the glittering arms, and is eager to join, forgetting the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, and the graves, perhaps unmarked. I'm ready to follow you, Jesus, you say, as you step out boldly and counterculturally. But then Jesus looks you in the eyes and he says, people who follow me have to give up things that they would buy and have for themselves to take care of those who don't have enough. They move to strange countries to tell others who need to hear the good news. They don't have enough me time because they're busy giving their time to others, people not even in their family. Many times they're exhausted 
at the end of the day. They let go of alcohol and drugs, things that make them feel safer. They give up watching dirty shows and porn and time fantasizing about new love relationships. That's what Jesus says it takes to join him in the boat as a true disciple. Like the other would-be disciple, you may have come this morning a bit under-eager. Well, Jesus looks from the over-eager scribe over to you. And you say, as he meets your eyes, listen, I would love to follow you. There are just a few things I need to take care of first. Maybe once my house is more paid off and my 401k is set up, maybe once my career has reached a point where I feel my parents are really proud of me, my kids are through school and are happily married, then I'm all yours. It seems fair. It seems reasonable. Well, Jesus says to us, your business is life, not death. Let the people in the crowd do that. Follow me. Pursue eternal life. Listen to this great quote on this point. The Christian life is not adding Jesus to one's own way of life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his and being willing to pay whatever cost that may require. There is no thrill like the joy of knowing and following Christ, but it is not a thrill that the world can understand or appreciate. Jesus Christ gives great peace to those who belong to him, but his peace is not the kind the world gives or seeks. His joy and peace come by the way of ridicule, suffering, and the cross, which his disciples must take up when they follow him. Well, most of you here this morning have renounced your old way of life, and you're in the boat this morning. But there are things in your life that are out of control. Bad things are happening that you can't stop. You cannot fix it. You're in the boat, and at times, the waves are covering it. And you're scared. Of course you're scared. Well, my first encouragement to you this morning is, I'm so glad that you're still in the boat, and that you haven't jumped out of the boat and into the sea. You know, there are many so-called Christians, disciples today, who are too scared to even get into the boat, and many, many others who claim to have faith in Jesus, but they bail out of the boat when the sea gets rough. I encourage you, don't leave the side of the only one who can save you. If you're afraid, cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me, I'm going to drown. My second encouragement to you is to not be dismayed if he doesn't calm your storm right away. But he first asks you this question, right in the middle of the storm. Why are you afraid, O oh, you, of little faith? You know, many of us feel that it's unloving of God to see us so scared and then to ask us a question like this and let the storm rage on about us. But don't be dismayed if that's you today. Jesus is reminding you that however violent the storm is not your biggest problem. 
It's your faith that matters most. Jesus cares more about growing your faith in him than calming your storm. Dan Doriani gives us great insight here. Some small fear or trepidation is perfectly sensible, he says. When a physician says, hmm, I'll need a closer look at this, there is reason to fear. But all-consuming dread is another matter. Listen to this. Irrational fear resists comfort. It forgets the power and goodness of God. It extinguishes faith. Godly fear recognizes the threat at hand, but is tempered by confidence in God. When dangers loom, we should remember that God masters storms. We should remember the story of Jonah. Although Jonah was in a state of rebellion and the Lord had a different agenda with him, he raised the storm, he placed Jonah in it, and he delivered him from it, all for his good. He will do the same for us. Therefore, let us cast aside irrational fear. John says perfect love drives out fear. We have perfect love when our love for God answers his perfect prior love for us. If we could grasp how much God loves us, enough to die in our place, if we understood how mighty God is, mighty enough to fling galaxies into space, then fear would take the right size and shape. Hanging out in the crowd can feel safe until Jesus calls you to follow him in the boat. And honestly, hanging out in the boat with Jesus and with Christians can feel safe until dire circumstances test your faith in Jesus. But the scariest place of all is to be in the sea. And if you leave here this morning knowing accurately who Jesus is, understanding that he is God, and that you have sinned, like me, like everyone else here has sinned and are unclean in your spirit, but you're unwilling to repent, to obey, and to follow him and receive eternal life, then, I hate to say it, but who are you most like in our story? You are most like the demons in our story. They called Jesus the Son of God. They knew the truth, but they did not love it. Here's their attitude when they saw him. We know our inescapable time of judgment is coming. But what are you doing here already? Give us a little more time, we beg you. And Jesus is merciful, isn't he? Even to them. Their eternal judgment is yet to come. Your eternal judgment is yet to come. God is being merciful to you today. You still have time to escape that judgment. You can still marvel that God took on human flesh to marvel that he suffered your judgment in your place, forgiving you and granting you eternal life. Marvel that he will never leave you or forsake you, but will keep you safe and grow your faith through 
every storm that he saves you from. So I beg you this morning, take hold of your current place and take hold of Jesus in the boat. Nothing else that you're holding on to can save you. Will you please stand? And let's close in prayer. And I want to close by just reading as a prayer some of the words from a song that we sang in the first service this morning, which are so appropriate as a prayer for us this morning. So bow your heads with me. Lord, this morning, what is our only confidence? It's that our souls to you belong. Who holds our days within your hand? And what comes apart from your command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh, that bring us close unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal, now and ever. We confess, Jesus Christ, our hope in life and death. Amen.